Hello, my name is Dan Badger, and I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Words of Endearment with Bill Coker. We continue the series titled Faith for Troubled Times, preached at World Gospel Church in 1996. Today's message is from Isaiah, chapters 56 through 58. God's uncompromising expectation deals with his justice, Sabbath, and righteousness in Isaiah's day and in our day. Please remember to check out Bill's book, Words of Endearment, The Ten Commandments as a Revelation of God's Love. You can find it on Amazon, or you may contact Ann Coker by email. Please find her address in this episode's notes. Now let's hear from Bill. Those of you who are visiting with us, we've been looking at Isaiah, beginning with chapter 40, and reading through and looking at uh, this second part of Isaiah. And we'll be continuing through chapter 66, but today we're on uh, chapters 56 through 58. And we're trying to pick out of these chapters, not individual verses which could well occupy our thoughts for a whole hour. We're trying to get the gist, what is it that Isaiah is saying to the people? Prophesying at this time when the Israelites are going to be coming back from bondage, coming back from exile in Babylon, coming back to renew their nation, renew their families, to renew their relationship with God. What is God saying to them? So we've been looking at this and asking ourselves some questions. What is Isaiah really driving at? Listen to him as he writes in chapter 56. The Lord said, be honest and fair. Soon I will come to save you. My saving power will be seen everywhere on earth. I will bless everyone who respects my Sabbath and refuses to do wrong. Foreigners who worship me must not say the Lord won't let us be a part of his people. Men who are unable to become fathers must no longer say we are dried up trees. To them I, the Lord, say respect the Sabbath, obey me completely, and keep our agreement, our covenant. Then I will set up monuments in my temple with your names written on them. This will be much better than having children because these monuments will stand there forever. Foreigners will follow me. They will love me and worship in my name. They will respect the Sabbath and keep our agreement. I will bring them to my holy mountain where they will celebrate in my house of worship. Their sacrifices and offerings will always be welcome on my altar. Then my house will be known as a house of worship for all nations. I, the Lord, promised to bring together my people who were taken away and let them join the others. And I'm uh, going to pause at that moment, at this place, and just simply call your attention to the rest of these chapters. One of the things that I'm very famous for is forgetting things, and I forgot that children need to go to children's church. They can go. <laughs> if they haven't already said, well, this preacher's done it again. How do you take the measure of a person? How do you really judge what a person is really like? Who a person is? What are the qualities, the goodnesses? What are the mistaken things in a person's life? Well, around us, there are a lot of criteria that people use. For example, many people will use financial worth as a measure of a person. It measures your success. 
How good have you accomplished your job? How well have you succeeded at your professional pursuits? And financial uh, gain is some indication of how we have succeeded. For other people, it's a matter of influence. And the fact that a person is a recognized person in the community. I was in a Boy Scout celebration yes yesterday afternoon, and one of the candidates for senator was there, Edward Peace. People recognize him. He has influence because of his accomplishments. Is that how we measure, take the measure of a person? Do we do it with education? Do we look at how many degrees are hung on the wall? Is that what really makes a good man? Is that what makes a person effective? Is that what makes a good woman? Or do we do it in terms of talent? The people who have such gifts that they can play and sing or draw or, or do a multitude of different things. They have skills that are honed and useful. So this is, this is a person that's well respected. Do we do it in terms of the promise that this individual has? Because this person has great potential. Here is a person that really is to be valued. You hear that sometimes in the newspaper. When they look at a candidate, for example, they measure his potential and say, this is the person who has great value. Is that true? Do we do it in terms sometimes of the benefit that that person brings to us personally or to a cause that we might espouse? How do you measure a person? How do you take the measure of any individual? But let's press that a little bit further. How do you take the measure of a good person? I've heard people say, that's a good man, that's a good woman. How do you know that? What's the standard by which you judge goodness? Is it because a person does not do certain things? I've heard people say, Mormons are very moral people. They don't drink coffee, they don't drink tea, and they don't smoke cigarettes. They're very moral people. Is that so? is the fact that there is a tremendously high birth rate among unmarried girls. Does that have, in Mormon communities, does that have anything to do with morality? How do you judge because a person doesn't do something? Is that really the measure at all? Is goodness the, a quality that is measured by negatives or is it something that's measured by positives? How do you tell a good person? How do you know when you yourself are accomplishing goodness in your life? If it's what a person does rather than what a person doesn't do, how do we really ferret out between one thing and another? Somebody says, well, John is really a good person. John is a faithful member of the church. Wonderful. Jesus had something to say in a, in a story once, he said two men went up to the temple to pray. The one was a very faithful church member. He tithed everything that came to his possession. He did all of the things in the law. And the other was a tax collector, one of the most hated, despised people in Israel. But he said the publican went home justified rather than the Pharisee. Wow, well, how do you measure a good person? 
Can you do it? And if you measure it by things that a person does, then how do you differentiate between those things? What constitutes goodness in a person's life? Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 58 when he speaks for God to these people in Israel, and it's certainly not commendatory. He says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression to the house of Israel their sins. Yet, catch this, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness. Wow. They went to church. They said they were very interested in God. They said they were hungering and thirsting for knowledge about God. They assumed, said God through Isaiah, that they were righteous. But of course, as we read the chapter, we know that that really was not the case at all. How does God measure a person? What are God's expectations for individual lives? When we go back to the books of Moses, we discover that Moses had given the people a very simple criterion. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Moses said, speaking for God, Now if you will faithfully obey me, you will be my very own people. The whole world is mine, but you will be my holy nation and serve me as priests. If you obey me. Jeremiah emphasizes this, and he, re, he reiterates this same expectation in his temple sermon in chapter 7 of his book, when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, I did not command them to offer sacrifices to me. Instead, I told them, if you listen to me and do what I tell you, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and all will go well for you. If you listen to me and do what I tell you. Already I can hear somebody saying, oh yeah, but that's the problem. If you listen to me, God doesn't talk to me. Several weeks ago or months ago, I was giving my testimony in a meeting of the Emmaus team gathering and talking a little bit about how as a 17-year-old boy one Sunday evening, God spoke to me in a service and he called me into the ministry. And as I shared my testimony with them, uh, I, I just simply tried to talk a little bit about God calling in, in our lives. But the interesting thing was a man who came up to me afterwards. And I'd worked on one of the Emmaus walks when he was there, and I knew he was a man that came out of some great struggles in his personal life. And he met me in the, after I'd given my testimony, and he said to me, he said, you know, I've always wanted God to talk to me, but he's never talked to me. I wish God would speak to me like he spoke to you. I've thought a lot about that man's statement. And I guess there are a lot of things that go through my own mind about this. The one thing that immediately comes to mind is the fact that we can't expect God to speak to everybody in the same way. That was one of the defeats in my early Christian life. I wanted to have something just like other people had. 
I would listen to a person's testimony and say, that's what I want in my life. And then I would really set out for God to do that. And needless to say, he never did. God meets us in our, his own peculiar way. And he suits it to our circumstances. God doesn't talk to me. Maybe God does talk to me. And maybe the problem isn't that he doesn't speak, but that I don't hear him. Maybe he's speaking to me on any number of occasions, but because I'm listening for something else or I'm looking for something else, I don't hear him when he speaks. Maybe we're hard of hearing. Well, I've gotten some hearing aids lately. I don't wear them. Boy, they really bug me. My wife says I bug her too. Put them in. What'd you say? <laughs> What about spiritual hearing aids? Is there something that can help me to hear God speak to me? Well, I want to tell you there are spiritual hearing aids and they're not nearly so bothersome as the physical ones. For example, I think of the hearing aid of Scripture. I found in my own personal life that God has spoken to me on numerous occasions, not by a voice coming out of heaven, but by the quickening of a verse of Scripture that I was reading. God was speaking to me through that scripture, and I heard him. Oh, it wasn't some individualized word, as I say, that came out of the cloud, but I heard God speaking. And sometimes there's another hearing aid for the other ear. It's called prayer. And when we pray, God will speak to us. Maybe not in those audible terms, but we will know this is the way God wants us to go. This is what God wants me to do. This is the leading of the Holy Spirit. God has promised that. Now somebody else is going to stop me and say, I know you've got to catch the bus, but I have another problem. How do I know when it's God speaking to me? I listen to some of these people who are talking and I wonder, is it God who's talking to them or are they talking to themselves? I had a lady in a camp meeting, I shared this story several times, who came to me and she insisted that I was wrong when I said that adultery was contrary to the will of God because the Bible said it was sin. She said it can't be sin. And as I talked with her, I found out why for her it couldn't be sin because she was having an affair. And the worst of it is she was having an affair with her pastor. And the worst part of that was her explanation that this must be the will of God because I've never heard him preach better sermons or pray prettier prayers than since we started our, our affair. If it feels good, it must be right. Oh, you chuckle about that? Maybe we don't do anything quite that serious. But how many times have we heard somebody say, this is what God told me, and you walk away saying, did God really say that? I had a lady call me on the phone a couple of weeks ago. And she called me back a few nights later and I happened to be over here at the church. And she had asked us to pray for a move that she had to make. And then as she called me a couple of nights later and I picked up the phone and she began to tell me about her situation. She said, God commanded me to get married, but I didn't know any man to marry. Now God has commanded me to move and I don't even know where I'm supposed to go. And my question was, do you think God's talking? 
Is that the way God leads his people? What do we hear? And how do I know when God is speaking to me? Well, when we talk about God's expectations for us and turn to the book of Isaiah, we can discover that his expectations are there very clearly. If we had time, we could look at some of them. And let me just skip through them very quickly. First of all, he begins right there in chapter 56 by saying, Do justice. Do righteousness. That's my will for you. That's my expectation of you. My standard of conduct for you is a standard that really squares with righteousness, that which is right, that which reflects my character, my nature, not defined culturally by how people want to describe the right, but defined by who I am and what I am like. Do justice. The new little contemporary English version says it this way. Be honest, be fair. Hey, that's a pretty good translation. What does God want from me? Be honest. Starts by being honest with myself. Continues by being honest with other people. Be fair, both to myself and others. And then Isaiah says, keep the Sabbath from being profaned. The importance of worship, so significant in the Bible. We want to worship God. We need to worship God. And that's his expectation that I should come before him, that I should bow my head in his presence and say, Thou art the Lord, and beside you there is no other. Thou art God. I was reading a, a book by Austin Farrar, and I've mentioned this a couple of Sundays. And in this book, he has a chapter on uh, Sabbath and Sunday, and he makes a statement that I really like, talking about the Jewish Sabbath. He says, you know, the Sabbath for the Jew marked off a block of time cleared for God. I like that. A block of time cleared for God. Wow, that's what God expects of me. Mark off some time in your life. That's my time. I listen to people saying, you know, fathers and mothers need to block off some time for their children. That's good advice. Sometimes children are bereft of their parents because they don't have time for them. A father needs to take time to be with his sons and daughters. But what about the block of time I mark off for God? And I say, this is God's time. I'm not going to let other things intrude on this time because it's God's time. The world is constantly trying to turn us away from God. It's always trying to fill up those times with something else. Marking off a block of time, clearing it for God. Now, as Christians, we don't emphasize so much Sabbath. We emphasize more Sabbath than we do keeping. It's not a matter of rules and regulations and trying to set all kinds of times and seasons. Paul in Romans 14 says, you know, some people designate one time, some people designate another time. Everybody needs to be clear before God that this is right. I like to say when he says, don't profane the Sabbath, what he's saying is render to God the things that belong to God. The world has its own place. Well, we've got to catch a bus. And I want to turn you to Isaiah 58. And I want to give you one last thing out of Isaiah. There's a beautiful paradigm here. Would you take it and read it sometime this week and think about it? Here's God's expectation. 
First of all, in Isaiah 58, verses 3 and 4, God's expectation is deeper than religious performance. Isaiah says, you wonder why the Lord pays no attention to you when you go without eating and act humble, but on those same days you give up eating, you think only of yourselves and abuse your workers. You give, even get angry and ready to fight. Now, no wonder God won't listen to your prayers. God expects something deeper than religious performance. Secondly, God's expectation involves neither humiliation nor dehumanization. You get the idea that piety means to have a hangdog look where we're sort of drooped over denying even humanity to ourselves. That's what it really means to be religious. But listen in verse 5. Do you think the Lord wants you to give up eating and to act as humble as a bent over bush? Or to dress up in sackcloth and sit in ashes? Is this really what he wants on the day of worship? Don't you hear it? God says, I'm not trying to humiliate you. It's not what I'm after. What does God expect? Look at verses 6 and 7 and into verse 9. He says, I'll tell you what it is, what it really means to worship the God. Remove the chains of prisoners who are chained unjustly. Free those who are abused. Share your food with the hungry. Share your home with the poor and homeless. Give clothes to those in need. Don't turn away your relatives. Don't mistreat others or falsely accuse them or say something cruel. My, how practical God gets in this business of his expectations. But the interesting thing is I studied that chapter this week were the rewards because righteousness has its own reward. It isn't God has given us something for doing his will. But when we do his will, we find ourselves rewarded. Notice three times, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, the little word then occurs. Then your light will shine like the dawning sun and you will be quickly healed. Then you will beg the Lord for help and he will answer, here I am. Then your light will shine in the dark and your darkest hour will be like the noonday sun. Then when you fulfill the expectations. Now, I got to the end of this sermon, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have missed something terribly significant. It is never adequate to talk about God's expectation simply in general terms because God doesn't have a relationship with us in general terms. He has a relationship with us personally. God knows my name. God speaks to me. God knows your name and speaks to you. His working in you and his expectations are not found just simply in some kind of a standardized list. Oh, you want to know what God wants? Uh, here, over here in the file, here's the list. Just take that home and, and this is what God's got for you. You know, sort of like uh, these are the rules and the regulations. That's not the way God deals with us. And even when we talk about these, this beautiful paradigm and we see the general things, God's relationship to us is much more personal than that. And I cannot really know what God's expectation is until I seek what he is saying to me personally. Now the things of worship and righteousness and honesty and fairness, all of that's there. But what does God want from me as a person? And here I can't compare myself with you or you compare yourself to me. There's only one thing every one of us can do, and that is to come before the Lord and say, Lord, 
what will you have me to do? What do you want from me? And listen to what he says. Because only then will we really know God's expectation for us personally. Lord, what a wonderful God you are. You speak to us personally. You call us to yourself. You give us the opportunity to follow you. You give to us those things that are commensurate with your character, with your nature, and you say your conduct needs to be in conformity with these things that represent who I am and what I am like. But beyond that, you talk to us as persons, and you speak to us, and you show us your will. Lord, that's our cry this morning. Show us your will. Help us to walk in it, and help us to be faithful in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please send any comments to Bill and Ann by email. Please join us next week on Words of Endearment with Bill Coker.